Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend against all odds. But we are here, and that's what counts. Coming up, author Sequoia Nagamatsu tells us about his fantastic new book, How High We Go in the Dark. As I started to explore and do more research, I actually ended up going to um, a mortuary, uh, I guess, convention or expo, whatever you want to call it. Um, so it was you know, me and a bunch of... Uh, you know, Japanese senior citizens. Plus, a conservation biologist has an idea for dealing with invasive species, and it is eating them. A friend of mine described it as like Doritos with legs. You know, it's, it's, it's crunchy, and it's invasive. And you're going out and you collect these, and you can find them by the thousand. But first, let's take a moment to chat about all the weird and wonderful things that happened this week. With us today, we have Lauren Chuljan, a reporter and producer for New Hampshire Public Radio. Lauren, hello. Hi, Greta. We also have Ariane Nettles, a journalism professor at Northwestern University. Ari, hi. Hi, Greta. That was like a song. (laughs) I was like, I'm just waiting for the singing hello from Ariane. I love it so much. I know. Okay, so I think we should start with this COVID test thing because it's an interesting one. So late last year, President Biden said he would distribute hundreds of millions of K95 masks and at-home rapid tests. Earlier this week, people were able to order up to four tests per household to be mailed out by USPS. Um, I, I, for one, I mean, we've talked about the burden on USPS, like on this show. I think, Lauren, we even chatted with you about it. Like, yes, putting all of this on the Postal Service seems like a lot. Um, I'm certainly not holding my breath. I'm curious how y'all feel. Um, Ariane, did you sign up? I did. I did. You know, I think. People, I mean, just to show how excited people were to get these tests is that I, in no less than maybe 15 minutes, got probably 15 text messages about like, here's the link, here's the link, here's the link, Mm -hmm. you know. And so um, I think that it just goes to show how much people really need these tests, you know, especially after December where they were so difficult to find. I was one of the people who really struggled to find tests when I had COVID. I could not, you know, and I I see myself as somebody who's pretty technologically savvy, who has a mm-hmm. lot of privilege in being able to like go to different places. I have family members who can help me look, you know, I have all these things and I could not find rapid tests. And then I ended up going, I couldn't get a in-person test either and ended up actually finding an in-person test at the chain that is now known for, you know, fraudulent results. And so it just, yeah. And so it just shows how like, you know, you're desperate, you're driving around, you're looking for a place to get tested. And so to just at least have a rapid at your house where you can just kind of know how to move, like, do I isolate? Do I, you know, stay away from the people in my house like you need those Mm -hmm. to make decisions I think it just sucks that 
there is a limit per household, knowing that right. there are so many just multi-generational households that have way more than four people in a home. And really, we need like four per person. Right. Yeah, right. Like four is certainly not enough, but at least I'm hoping that it's going to start normalizing the idea of testing. Like yeah. I remember around the holidays, like there are people in my family who are like, what do you mean we have to test? Like it's a mm-hmm. pain in the ass. And also mm-hmm. I don't feel sick. And like, why do I have to do that? And I just, I don't know. We, we've learned so much about how this is one of the ways that can help us get back to our, you know, before time mm-hmm. lifestyles. And so I just hope that this like, just, I don't know, like helps push anybody over the edge of any hesitation they might have about doing it. Yeah, it seems, I don't know, it's interesting because I think both of yours, like it feels a little bit like it's too little too late, this like four pack of tests. And it is it is better than nothing. I just feel like nothing is a pretty low bar. Oh, yeah. Like know? wouldn't you have wanted these four or more tests like, I don't know, two months ago, six yeah. months ago? Mm-hmm. Well, I think but, too, you know. learning about how like in Britain, they're literally giving out seven packs to whoever mm. says they need them. is just like, yeah, wouldn't that be great if you could test every day if you felt like you needed to, you know? Let's like take a positive spin, you guys. Let's just say <laughs> this is a turning point. Yes, <laughs> okay, okay. Yes. I like the cautious optimism. I think I'm that's glad. very important. Um, so another big story from this week is that we lost an icon, fashion <sighs> journalist Andre Leontali, <sighs> who used to be the creative director for Vogue, passed away. He was 73. He leaves a huge legacy. Uh, Ariane, what does his story mean to you? Yeah, you know, I don't often cry when celebrities die, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I feel really bad, but like, you know, you don't know them, know them. You just think you know them, but I really felt like I knew, you know, Andre Leon Talley. And I think that the thing was, is that cause he, besides just being like this kind of iconic, larger than life person, I mean, he was also seen as like kind of a safe space for so many people like Robin Mm -hmm. um, Gavon and her, you know, piece about his life. She really talked about how he was this safe space for people to, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of once you get in, you know that he has your back. He always is going to make sure he compliments you and helps you celebrate successes. And so in a industry that is so cutthroat as fashion to have people who are like that, that is how they grow to be this like I icons because you know he wasn't an icon because people were afraid of him he was an icon because people loved him so Mm. you know that's such a beautiful way of putting that and his authenticity about like even like his thoughts about fashion he credited so many things to growing up in North Carolina with his grandma and how she would make sure that every single no matter how hard she worked she made sure that you know all the linens were pressed and everything Mm. was bleached a perfect white and she put so much care into how she she looked when she go went to church on Sunday. And so all of these things kind of make him this mix of the utmost piece of luxury, but also the simple luxuries that feel attainable that we can do every day in our lives, right? Like we can put on a dress that makes us feel beautiful. We can make sure that our home feels cozy and gorgeous and the little luxuries that we love. And I, I, I don't think there are many people in fashion that are known for that. Mm, that was beautiful. Yeah, that was really beautiful. It reminds me of um, something Saeed Jones, the poet and author, wrote in his newsletter, actually, mm. about Andre. He said, one look at him and you wanted more for yourself. Another glance yeah. and you understood that more could look like anything as long yes. as it was what you wanted for yourself. Oh, I love that. He just like brought this 
gravitas to fashion. Like he just was so intelligent. His writing was mm-hmm. so beautiful. The profile he did of Michelle Obama back in the day. I mean, he just mm-hmm. like brought such a depth of knowledge. And I think when, you know, you're a girl like myself growing up loving fashion and you just mm-hmm. felt like there was just more there. There was an art form. It's not just about like materialism and clothes. It's yeah. it's it's a culture. It's a lifestyle. It's self-care, if you will. And I just also love that, like, you know, there was a video going around about something he said about Rihanna during the Met Ball. Mm-hmm. When, when I saw Rihanna with that great yellow train, I also was taken aback. But he just takes the moment to the next level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love a girl from humble beginnings who comes to big stop. It's like the American dream. That's how you do it. And just keep going with the... I want more train and more train. I want drama. I want five people picking up my thing. <laughs> and then, and like, without taking another breath, he's like, this, this is, is the, the Black, Black Frozen. Frozen. Yes! <laughs> this is the queen of the night. He just had such a way to be sassy and smart and thoughtful and just... I'm with you. Like when celebrity dies, a celebrity dies, I'm like, well, I didn't really know them. Mm-hmm, I can like be thankful mm-hmm. for their contribution they made to my life, but it doesn't affect me. But with this, it really felt like it was somebody in my like fashion universe in like the special yeah. part of my brain where like beautiful things live. Like he is now missing. You know, it's interesting because I actually did not know anything about Andre before he passed earlier mm. this week. And it was really beautiful to read what he meant to so many people who I admire. I mean, I mentioned that newsletter from Saeed. Another one is Travel Anderson, who hosts this podcast, Fanti. They're like a, a fashion and pop culture journalist on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. And they wrote this gorgeous thread, too, all about him. And they wrote, long before I decided to become a journalist, his example paved a way for me. It let me know that I, too, could be a journalist just as I am. I just thought it was really gorgeous. And, like, I cried reading that thread. It was oh. like, oh, my God, like the impact of this person. It's amazing. Yeah. And so now you know him because you know him through all these people. Who I he do. Yes. So, like, even though you didn't know you knew him, you knew him. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so let's move on to some weirder news. This week we found out Daniel Radcliffe, who like is Harry Potter more or less, is going to play Weird Al in a new biopic. It's going to be on Roku. Um, This is the latest in a number of really interesting choices for him. I was curious if y'all think he's like intentionally picking weird stuff on purpose to get away from having been Harry Potter or if he just really is a delightful weirdo and the stuff is appealing to him. What do you think, Ariane? Like, is there a strategy here? I mean, at first I thought it could be a strategy, but also as I was reading, I started in my own head seeing all these Weird Al songs that I didn't remember that I love. And so <laughs> I could also see this opportunity being presented to him. And he's like, oh, yeah, I did like that song. You know, like I, I- mean, yeah, like dude's an icon <laughs> yeah. in a very specific way. It's true. Amish Paradise was my jam. <laughs> Okay. Um, eat it. Yeah, you know, like eat, eat it. it. Eat like it's a classic. Okay, you know, smells like Nirvana. just like you know what I didn't even remember that I knew and remembered these songs so I feel like it could also just be 
the excitement of being able to play like somebody who is pretty beloved, you know? I mean, it's true that like Daniel, I mean, after doing all those Harry Potter movies, like he probably doesn't have to work. Right. So the idea of him just getting to like pick stuff that seems fun, I completely respect and think is amazing. Oh, yeah. There was like a great quote in a story I saw that he was saying how liberating it was to like do the big thing in the beginning because Mm. he's obviously set for life financially and also like. Now he just gets to play. And I think probably taking on a lot of these weird things that he's been doing is to be like, you know, I have range here, people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like just swinging to the opposite end of the spectrum, which like, yeah, yeah, I mean, more power to him for sure. Okay, so just to double down on the weird, I want to talk about this crow situation. (laughs) So authorities in Sunnyvale in Northern California have been struggling with an intense influx of crows, especially during the pandemic. Apparently, thousands of them have overtaken downtown. People have had enough. Their plan is to use lasers to get them to leave. I kind of both love and hate this story. (laughs) Um, The local Audubon Society, by the way, is not a fan of the laser situation. Um, This is not the first story I've even heard about wildlife sort of encroaching on urban areas, especially, you know, during like early days of the pandemic when everything had quieted down so much. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was really interesting. And it made me wonder, like, what the nightmare scenario is of, like, the worst pack of animals that could encroach upon your town. What do you think, Lauren? I mean, first (laughs) of all, I have felt powerless, not with crows, but with seagulls at the beach in New Hampshire. I have to say, though, I had not seen this uh, breaking news until Greta shared it with us. (laughs) And first, I just have to recommend this New York Times story about it is it's perfection. It's I mean, it's really the twists and turns. I mean, apparently in the 1940s, (laughs) Illinois, somewhere in Illinois, they used dynamite and they killed 300,000 birds. So, like, at least we're not doing that, I guess. You know, that's true. And and. Apparently, it's not even because of the pandemic. It's because roosts, as they're called, big groups of Mm -hmm. crows, they move around and no one knows why, according to the people who, wait for it, study crows. Who knew that was a thing? Listen, it, oh. this is a work of art. Speaking of works of, of art. Of course, that's a this thing. This highly are amazing. I know. I know. You know, going back to that question about, like, what types of animals that can take over a city. Remember when here we had that whole urban coyote thing in chicago yeah yeah. and we're still around so you know we still made it yeah that's true there you go i did see a rat in my trash dumpster it like surprised me it scared the bejesus oh but the rats live here i mean that this is their town this is their place like you are the visitor so that's not the same (laughs) like this is this this is where the rats you know uh we're supposed to be paying them rent I don't even know how to wrap up to to something fun for the end of this. I mean, I would just highly encourage everyone to go down the Andre Leon Talley rabbit hole, even if you yeah. don't like fashion or even if like Greta, yeah, you didn't totally. even know who he was. Yeah, no, for sure. Even then, it was still really wonderful to learn about him. Yeah, so. yeah. I think that's a good thing. See, we, we did it. We turned it around. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lauren, Ariane, thank you both so much. This was too much fun. Oh, a blast. Thank you. Our next guest is Sequoia Nagamatsu. He's the author of How High We Go in the Dark, which is kind of a collection of interconnected vignettes about a near future world 
that is in many, many senses completely devastating. The climate crisis has all but destroyed life as we know it. There's a pandemic. A fun COVID twist is that it actually hits kids first. It is brutal. Um, But somehow this book still manages to eke out some hope. It's multi-layered and complicated and spans continents and decades and even universes. And yet somehow it is also barely 300 pages. Sequoia is with us now. Sequoia, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. So uh, I want to start with how you figured out how to balance between like completely fucking miserable and actually kind of hopeful. (laughs) Because I was really impressed that you pulled that off. Like halfway Mm -hmm. through the book, I was like, oh man, this is pretty hard to read right now. But like, it takes a couple really lovely turns at the same time. Right. I, I did write, um, you know, 99% of the book pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also helps that the nature of of the plague in the book, you know, it, it is much more devastating than than what we're going through in a lot of ways. It's something that probably wouldn't happen, I would hope, in our reality, because mm-hmm. there is a kind of otherworldly nature to it. Um, you know, that said, even though there's this narrative thread of the plague, it's not really the starring role of of the book um, <laughs> in that it's not an outbreak narrative with Dustin Hoffman and Cuba Gooding Jr. <laughs> jumping into a helicopter. You'll have to take us out with you. We're not moving. We're not moving! The stars of the book are ultimately families, friends, lovers, and I was always, um, you know, even in the early days when I was writing this, you know, almost, you know, started to write this almost 10 years ago, I always wanted to privilege um, everyday lives, kind of almost sort of the mundane activities that we go through and how we might be able to find small moments um, that can kind of get get us through um, a very severe tragedy. So this book um, spans a lot, as I mentioned, in terms of time and space, but also just subject matter. And you've mentioned a couple of them. I was wondering, though, if you had sort of like a favorite deep dive as you were researching. And maybe it's something that didn't even end up in the book, but just like a topic that that you found really fascinating as you were exploring it. I guess, you know, I, I started writing this when I was living in Japan in, I guess, 2008, 2009. And I was kind of faced with this culture, um, you know, both kind of an exploration of my own heritage, but this acknowledgement that Japanese society is often dealing with this interesting tension between the distant past, this tradition, you know, kind of the Japan of temples, the Japan of cherry blossoms, Mm -hmm. the Japan, you know, the quieter Japan, but there's also the Japan of innovation and technology. And that identity really kind of was embraced and and was brought forth, you know, post-World War II. Um, So if you think about a lot of anime and manga, um, a lot of, you know, the visions of technology becomes almost a monstrous entity. So I asked myself, how does this kind of identity transcend to death, to funerary practices in a culture, in a country where the demographic is, um, you know, made up of a lot of elderly people? Mm-hmm. Um, a city like Tokyo is already, you know, um, they've already built things like funerary skyscrapers, you know, these actually exist. There are death hotels. And so as I started to explore and do more research, um, you know, I I actually ended up going to um, a mortuary, uh, I guess, convention or expo, whatever you want to call it. Um, So it was, you know, me and a bunch of, uh, 
you know, Japanese senior citizens, um, you know, looking at caskets and and, and roaming around a convention hall. Um, You know, there are are vendors that would, you know, potentially, at least they said, would send a tiny bit of your ashes into space. I think Mm -hmm. one of the favorite things I, I, I discovered was, and this is great for a writer, is a pencil box. So your mm. ashes are pressed into a box of pencils. And the box itself becomes an urn every time you sharpen the pencil. Oh, um, wow. And I'm not sure, you know, if I'll end up doing this, you know, one day, but how beautiful and, you know, maybe maybe a little um, dark, as you know, I suppose, would it be to gift part of yourself in, in pencil form to your friends and family. Um, oh yeah, I think it'd be a, such a beautiful and, you know, albeit strange tribute for, for somebody that's a writer. It's so funny to think, like, I feel like if a loved one gave me their pencil box, I feel mm. like I would have an insane amount of pressure on what to write with the pencils. You exactly. I mean? Right, right. So this book is also about climate change. Right. And uh, the future you're portending here is grim. Mm-hmm. Um. One of the main characters in the book that we meet early on is someone who cares so deeply about like how to get people to actually do something about climate change. And to the point where, you know, she uh, is it fair to say she neglects her family? She definitely doesn't fulfill responsibilities that her family wishes she would. Right, right. Um, I don't know. I just thought it was a really fascinating tension. And I it seemed to me, too, that like they understood why she made the choices she did. But I don't know. It's obviously something that you've been thinking about a lot in terms of, you know, what it what it will take to get us to actually do something about what's happening. Um, So so what's the answer? What do we do? I mean, I think, uh, you know, one of the takeaways, at least I hope people take, you know, take from the book um, is the sense of community, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, community action and, 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 and community, however you want to define it. And I think it's only after we acknowledge each other and the plight of other communities Mm -hmm. um, and really embrace empathy that we can actually move forward in any real way. Um, We're not there yet, honestly. And I think in a lot of ways, you know, our own pandemic has really highlighted how divided we are and and how much there just needs to be more of a dialogue, more understanding and more transparency of how, you know, climate change and a lot of other issues are affecting um, largely silent, um, you know, demographics. Mm-hmm. I, I teach a climate fiction class, and I've been teaching a class like this for, for several years now. And my students, I guess there would be Gen Z, um, you know, partly because they saw their, their older brothers and sisters get screwed by the recession, <laughs> and also because they are abundantly aware of the climate crisis, um, the rhetoric that they use has is very different from when I started teaching. It's no longer we need to stop climate change full stop. It's more of a we need to mitigate what we've already done. We need to mm-hmm. stop. We need to prevent further damage, certainly. But we also need to learn how to adapt and to also acknowledge the inequities of climate change that will that will come and that will that will worsen. That's so interesting. It's it's fascinating, partly and devastating to think about the idea of, you know, these kids talking about needing to adapt to what's already happened. I mean, mm-hmm. it makes total sense. It's the smart thing to do, but it's also just like, ah, oh, fuck, we're that's where we are, isn't it? You know, right. I don't know, though. It seems to me like you've got this really interesting position of being someone who is is looking into the abyss, but also is able to still manage to be optimistic and have hope about where we're headed. I mean, I think. 
we can't afford not to be a little optimistic and like hold on to hope because if you've let go of that, like no matter how grim the world might seem, then kind of what's the point, you know? <laughs> um, it's like, why are you waking up? Um, I, I think, I think, I think, you know, we, you, you, you really need to force yourself to think about, okay, um, there are forest fires today and, and people are dying today and there are people that are, are going hungry or, or have, don't have access to clean water. And all of these things are true. But if you can hold on to the fact that, you know, I got to see, for example, my students, you know, march through town and actually kind of come together as a community and educate others about the climate crisis. Or if you can even think about smaller moments um, in your life or, or in your own immediate communities that are at least indicative of care, I think those are things that can, you know, at least light the way when things seem grim. Well, Sequoia, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and for writing like such a phenomenal book. It was truly a journey that I'm so glad I got to go on. Thank you very much for having me. That was Sequoia Nagamatsu. His new book is called How High We Go in the Dark. Coming up, we'll hear from a conservation biologist who wants us to eat our way out of the problem of invasive species. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Did you know invasive species are one of the greatest causes of extinction on the planet? Hundreds, probably thousands of species have gone extinct. Well, it turns out there could be a pretty intriguing and maybe even delicious solution to that. Joe Roman is a conservation biologist at the University of Vermont. His PhD was all about invasive species, non-native species that expand so much that they harm native ones. As part of his studies, he found himself on the shores of Nova Scotia doing what he calls a great gig, flipping over rocks to find European green crabs. I saw there was another guy also collecting things from the intertidal. He didn't look like someone who was doing his PhD. I chatted with him and he was collecting periwinkles, which is an invasive snail, and selling them to markets in Boston and New York. So Joe decided to cook them up and try them for himself. And it was one of the best meals I had. You know, it's fresh seafood that you harvest yourself. Joe Roman dedicated so much of his career trying to convince people not to overharvest plants and animals to make sure that we don't cause any more extinction. But all of a sudden, when it comes to invasives, he's suggesting the exact opposite. What if we ate our way out of the problem? The idea of this is not to be sustainable. And everyone's like, wait, what? You know, aren't we always talking about sustainable food? But no, you want to hit these as hard as you can. And actually, in this case, extinction is a happy ending for these species. We may not get to full extinction, but we can get to 
what we would call ecological eradication or reducing the ecological function of these invasives. And that's, that's a huge step forward when we, make, when we get there. And studies have already shown the potential impact of doing this. Lionfish is a great uh, example. So they compared one island where, uh, where lionfish, where they encouraged harvest, and the other where they didn't, populations went down. So there's lower biomass of that invasive species with harvest pressure, as you would expect. And then even cooler, they looked at the, how, how abundant the native species were, and the native species responded by increasing. So that's really the ideal here. But it actually has to taste good for this to work, right? Obviously. And in Joe's own words, he's not that much of a cook. So he got real ones involved, including sustainable sushi chef Bun Lai. You know, if you go to a restaurant and someone like Bun, who's who's there, prepares these small Asian short crabs that, frankly, I never thought I would eat when I was working in the field, but he makes them, and as one, uh, a friend of mine described, it's like Doritos with legs. You know, it's, it's, it's crunchy, and it's invasive, and you're going out and you collect these, you can find them by the thousand. Now, there are some critics of invasivorism, and some of them are worried that if invasive species are too delicious, that could cause its own problem. Some would argue, well, if you start an industry, people are going to really, you know, going to want to keep it around. And that means they're going to keep trying to subsidize it or they're going to try and manage it sustainably. I think that's that's a fair argument. Our track record is not very good on that. You know, things that we really like don't tend to you know, increase unless we're raising them as farm animals. So, sure, um, you know, that 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 is a possibly you know, a negative impact of invasivism to date. I haven't seen it. So are you ready to try this yourself? You can. Joe says you should probably start in your own backyard. As soon as the weather gets nicer, unfortunately, there'll be garlic mustard growing in my yard, which we'll be harvesting, which makes a, a fabulous pesto. Uh, another one here is the Japanese knotweed, which grows along rivers uh, in the East Coast, very good in the early spring. The key is learning about the species that are around you. I mean, dandelion is very good. It makes a great wine, too. That's probably an excellent starter. Uh, probably every listener is going to have a chance to, to get some dandelions once the spring comes. All right, that's it for this week. We will be back next Friday with a whole new episode for you. In the meantime, of course, you can keep in touch with us on the internet. Our Facebook group is pretty sweet. It's called Nerdette Headquarters. It is a very fun little corner of the internet. You can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash HQ. You could also sign up for our newsletter. Anna and I both put a bunch of sweet little links in there along with links to our newest episodes and all kinds of other stuff that you can sign up for at wbez.org slash AF. Nerdette is produced by me and Anna Bauman. Our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. We hope you have a great weekend. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.